Hello and welcome to Clean Beauty Asia's podcast. I'm your host, Ali Rook. This interview series is a collection of conversations with people who operate, support and facilitate beauty brands doing business in Asia. My aim is to provide valuable insights and information to make your beauty brand's transition into Asia as smooth and successful as possible. This first series is dedicated to cross-border e-commerce in China, and I really hope you find it valuable. Thank you so much for listening. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of my interview series. Today I have Rachel Dado. She's a partner and managing director of Fab Novel in Shanghai. Rachel has lived and worked in China for many years and with Fab Novel she's supported many brands in many different industries on their journey into China from strategy through to marketing operations. Fab Novel have recently released a very interesting report on the chinification of brands within beauty. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that today. Thank you so much Rachel for joining me. Thank you so much for having me Ali. So with this report, I think it's a very interesting topic. It's something that I think many brands will be interested in because with the report you're looking at both Chinese brands but also international brands and how they've adapted and they currently continue to adapt to the China market. So when you look at chinification as it's also as sophisticating a brand for the china market why did you decide to focus on this for your for your report that's such a great question really yes because we we see really all our partners and our clients are super excited about the opportunities that china offer but also uh, because it's been a while they may not have been able to come and see the market and uh, and therefore they you know they still don't have very good visibility over what needs to be done for the market but it is still a super relevant market for beauty i mean it's the first beauty market in the world it grew double digit you know uh, for 10 years until 2019 uh, and it's uh, and it's a market where prestige beauty is growing even faster um we see a lot of very interesting trends happening on the market from you know boosting by e-commerce and live streaming and very very uh sophisticated consumers they're really uh, trying to starting to be very interested into ingredients and that are going much beyond uh, skincare with more sophisticated categories but what they all see is that it's a very hard market to crack um because obviously there are very strong cultural traits with unique trends that you only see in China or even in certain areas of China certain geographic areas of China um and it has of course a very long history of developing its own path um obviously you also know that it has a specific digital ecosystem so all of the channels and platforms are quite different from the west and it has its own very powerful homegrown brands particularly in the beauty space which means that your competitors or the competitors that you will see the shape of the market will be quite different so in reality we see a lot of uh, brands you know failing to resonate very well with mm. chinese consumer 
And, uh, you know, the situation obviously has evolved a lot since I, I got to China the first time, 2008, and then I moved to 2011. There was a very, very strong appetite for everything foreign. Um, and since we've seen the growth of the domestic market, and so uh, and in, since 2020, a little bit more of a closing. So very few foreign born owners, I think, have been able to um, to visit China and kind of feel the market, meet consumers, and see this evolution from their own eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I too have seen the evolution from you know 2020. 2006 2008 to now and it's just insane how much yes. has changed and the yes. focus the focus away from that idealization of foreign brands to where we are at today with your report on the chinification where brand international brands are really adapting for the local market yes. and and you know to your point it is very difficult for any brand to do well in china whether you're a local brand or an international brand it's a tough market there's loads of competition in the beauty space but understanding as an international brand that you do have to adapt your strategy mm. um, as you go in is is really really important and i think that's why this this report is really interesting because you really draw it out um i think sort of adding to that is in the report you guys talk about the decoupling of China from the rest of the world you know and you touched on it before the fact that especially now because the last three years China's been pretty much closed to the rest of the world so how do you see that playing out in the years to come and mm. you know one other thing that I think western press talk about a lot and people who sort of watch China think about is this the the China tide, the pride, the nationalism. How do you how yeah. do you see that? Has that changed or, or where's that going? Yeah, the Guo Chao, right? The mm. national tides, yes. Um, I, totally, I think uh, for most businesses, decoupling uh, has become a reality for their operations in China in terms of uh, flow of people coming in and out, in terms of money coming in and out, uh, data with the PIPL and CSL, um, you know, the data protection laws that have been implemented last November. Mm. In terms also of uh, getting products in and out, so of, especially for beauty, that's gotten a little bit better with the animal testing recently, but import taxes are something that are you know, still there. Uh, and, and information in general, um, because of the language barrier and because of the digital, the difference in the digital ecosystem I mentioned before. So it is really a reality. And, and um, depending on their dependency and their maturity on the market, different brands are choosing different approaches. Uh, but what we are seeing more and more is um, brands that are uh, for which China is an important market or an important potential market that they are uh, already uh, start to operate from China for China mm -hmm. and kind of uh, reduce their dependencies on the rest, which means that actually for them, there is going to be an even stronger Chinafication if we can, if we can mm -hmm. use it this way. Um, and uh, we are seeing that for some brands that are maybe a little bit less mature or for which operations are very complex, um, they may lean on partners that have their foot in China even more in order to be able to bypass kind of that complexity and be able to continue to operate without having to handle the, the complexity themselves. So I think this is really what we, we are seeing. In terms of the Guo Chao and the national pride, I think this has been really a 
since 2018 to 2020, 2021, mm -hmm. kind of really been the tide. Um, and for good reasons, I mean, there are, there's a lot of innovation and really exciting sea uh, beauty brands, uh, particularly in the beauty space, but very exciting brands that are extremely agile, um, that have a lot to offer uh, in terms of relevance to Chinese consumers. Um, I think let's see after this 2020 uh, how that plays out. Maybe it won't uh, play out so obviously on all the uh, all the the category I think as it has in the past uh, couple of years. But I definitely think it's here to stay. And you know, it's not just for Chinese domestic consumers. I think those Chinese brands are also spreading out in Southeast Asia, where there's a big uh, Chinese diaspora, and and really are. Um, are also being relevant for those consumers. So I would say that China Pride is definitely here to stay, uh, but we may see it shift and evolve a little bit differently uh, from uh, from how it was, you know, two two three years ago, probably. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. I think the maturity of it, right? So to start with, mm. it was very. Um, there was a group generally of sort of Gen Z, younger consumers that were really yes. very proud of being Chinese and Chinese made and Chinese owned, which as you said, they absolutely should be. There's some fantastic brands. And I think really that celebration of innovation coming from within the country, right? Because for such a long yeah. time, they've had bad press that they've always been copying and all these things. So I think that's, mm. all, that's all very interesting and very healthy. I think what's been a little bit unhealthy um, for some brands is that sort of, um, you know, social media canceling, cancel culture or um, mm. things where brands have been jumped on. And, you know, in some cases it's been relevant because brands have not been so um, attuned to Chinese tastes and Chinese yes. sensibilities. And I think that's what leads to where we're at with this, report in terms of chinification because brands are, exactly it's made people it's made brands stand up and listen and think oh goodness you know i've got to um i've got to actually take this seriously i can't just put my thoughts and my aesthetics and my um global uh strategy on china and you know brands should be doing that anyway china's a big enough market um mm. to to warrant a, a different strategy but I think that's Absolutely. helped made brands stand up and realize that they have to do it. I couldn't um, agree more. I think you summarized it uh, extremely well. Yes, totally. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things that my audience is really interested in is the rise of sea beauty brands. And we sort of touched on this a little bit, but the, the one thing that I've debated here on this podcast with, with other people, and I'm very interested in your point of view, is the strength of brand building for sea beauty brands versus brand mm. activation, activation. And you mentioned yes. before <laughs> about sea um, beauty or Chinese brands in general going outside of China and expanding outside of China. And that's one thing that I've seen is a bit of a barrier. So I'm interested in terms mm. of your, your perspective of the brand building versus brand activation with C beauty brands. 
this is uh, such an amazing an amazing topic because usually like a lot of the times um, the perception is that uh, maybe foreign western japanese korean brands are great at brand building and then they fail activating in china and china chinese brands are very good at activating but they they don't have kind of the long-term vision or um, they not really making the investment on the brand dna and the brand building so we're people in the industry are wondering whether those brands will uh, hold the test of time. Um, the, the one thing that is sure is that they are extremely strong contenders to foreign brands and they are uh, very powerful. They've enjoyed huge investment from venture capital in the past years. If anything, the way that some sea beauty brands have developed look a lot more like a tech company mm. <laughs> burning cash to do acquisition uh, than, than, than building a beauty brand as, as most um, and most people would imagine it is. Um, but it's really made them extremely popular. It still accounts for 50% of, of the market and has grown faster than other categories. Um, one thing that I think is you know, interesting to observe is their agility. Uh, they have, they are innovating and pushing out new products faster than, than any other uh, foreign brand. So um, I think that this is makes them very tough because they are shaping a certain expectations for consumers. Mm -hmm. They are shaping consumers expecting to have new product release, like uh, IP collaborations, uh, special uh, special collections all the time, which is you know really creating that expectations. And they also create expectations for consumers to have those products at the tip of their finger on on all of the platforms within one click to purchase. So that has really shaped uh, the, the beauty market, I think, as it is now in China. As to where whether they will stand the test of time and whether you know they are doing this brand building exercise, I think at this stage, it's more of a market shaping uh, situation. Um, and uh, I hope some of them will really do that. I think uh, maybe not in the beauty. I, I, uh, I think one of the ones that I like a lot is not exactly in beauty, it's more in fashion, is Nei Wai. And they are doing a very beautiful branding branding exercises, uh, also being quite good on activation, but they also really are building their brand as an, as an uh, inclusive uh, beauty brand in a certain way, even though it's uh, underwear, right? Um, so that's one example that I always use to show that there are definitely some brands that are building uh, yeah. long-term brands. And I agree. I think Neywise is an example of something that really standing for something. You know, it's making a stand for yes. something and people buy into that and fall in love with it. I feel like with the beauty brands, it's hard to work out what most of them are standing for. And but I completely agree in terms of how they're building it with the tech in the tech space, like the tech sort of model of like burning cash. Like that's absolutely right. And it may pay off. Some of them will. I feel like definitely there'll be mm -hmm. one or two that succeed in that model um but we have seen some that were flying high and now have come off you know so i think uh, yes and i think the global expansion really is a big question mark for me i think southeast asia is one thing because of the chinese diaspora there is an opportunity there just purely because of the halo effect right but when you yeah, go yeah. further afield and i know that some of the bigger ones definitely have ambitions already building teams outside of China, I feel this is something that is really, that they may manage, but they're going to have to go through a massive learning curve in, a, in, order, to, in order to get there. So 
yeah, but it's a, it's 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 an interesting um, interesting one. So yeah. back on to international brands. So it, with your um, with your report, you guys have created a framework to sort of assess how well international brands have localized and Chinafied. Um, how essential do you feel this localization is? Obviously, you feel it's important, but how essential? And are there areas that are more important than others, for example, within your framework? Mm. Yeah, totally. So um, I would say that uh, um, it is absolute localization is absolutely mandatory. And for some of the risks that you have mentioned uh, previously, I think we are, if you are only uh, selling your products, even if you are only selling your products outside of China, I would say uh, you, you may have Chinese tourists and you may have Daigos, uh, where you may have actually already presence in China through um, tourists and Daigos taking pictures, purchasing their products, those products and, and sending them out. I think we're in a very, very, um, in this kind of space where, um, where information still, you know, is, uh, is shared and particularly among them. So I would say that it is, you should always have that in the back of your mind, um, particularly if you are, you know, approaching the market uh, straight up. So in this uh, framework, what we have identified are five different dimensions, one around the brand DNA, which is your name, your logo, and maybe your product names. A second one is around your products. So adapting your products for beauty, you know, it may be uh, adapting your formulas for um, Asian or Chinese skin. Uh, it could be, of course, packaging is a lot easier. In terms of channel, that's more uh, using China social media channels and e-commerce channels. Then communication, which is adapting the stories you have around your product to appeal to Chinese consumers. At least not offend them. <laughs> and uh, finally is the experience. So this is more about what are the expectations on Chinese consumers in terms of, you know, uh, collaborations, uh, pop-up stories, uh, you know, WeChat mini programs, and this kind of experiences or exhibitions, for example. And so I would say that the most fundamental ones are uh, channels. Of course, don't try to don't try to approach the market with your Amazon store and your Instagram account. Uh, communication. Uh, so when addressing using Chinese language and when addressing to Chinese consumers, being aware of their cultural context to avoid faux pas and the brand DNA, uh, we're not saying, I mean, we're not saying that you should change your brand DNA, but certain aspects like your brand name to make it easier to remember for Chinese consumers definitely is a key point to, to have that in Chinese characters. So uh, it's very obvious, right? Because the digital ecosystem and language are totally different. So those are the, the parts that I think are fundamental. And for more mature brands or brands that are trying to differentiate themselves with, you know, creating kind of a shiny point that will pop out on the market, experiences and products are really the ones that present very big opportunities. Um, yes, so I think that is, you know, how I would, uh, how I would answer mm. these questions. Mm. And when we look at those uh, eight, uh, eight niche beauty brands we've selected, uh, we've seen that uh, most of them are, uh, are uh, prioritizing channel communication and experience as their key localization uh, strategies. And a lot of them are focusing in terms of tactics on uh, product storytelling, collaborating with influencers, 
doing brand crossover potentially with Chinese brands and online to offline experiences as some of their key uh, um, key uh, key tactics. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think all those things are really important. I mean, some of them, as you said, are you don't enter the market unless you can go on Chinese channels. Like absolutely, it's a closed market. Most things are blocked. So that's mm. basic. I, one thing that I've been working with quite a few brands on recently is really the assets because um, yeah. I think first of all, in China, you always need more assets than you do in the West. That's always something that brands find so difficult to to sort of understand why you need so many more assets. And, that, and of course, mm. asset creation is expensive. And um, so, so that's always a big, big thing. But I think also in terms of now the consumer is more demanding about seeing how the products work on Chinese skin, Chinese hair, Chinese, you know, they want to see that it's suitable for them rather than yeah. you're a great brand that sells really well in the US that people love. Yeah, so what? right like there's a bit yeah. of there's a bit of that attitude and i think brands need mm. to understand that of course we're not trying to change their dna like they are a us or a uk brand and there should be some of that imagery that comes through but the but the the stuff that people can really resonate with is something else that uh, that the brands need to understand i think that's important um so then an example, what's the best example of localization do you think that you've seen recently? <laughs> yes, I think uh, the best is really hard to say because it's, yeah. uh, I think they are made of choices. Uh, but one that is uh, successful and that I thought was, was really interesting is uh, pharmacy. Mm -hmm. So that was acquired by PNG in 2021, uh, which is, I think, also a testimony to their to their success in, in global markets. And they, you know, they entered the China market through social media as early as 2017. So I think quite a, uh, a little bit earlier than some niche beauty brands, mm -hmm. uh, and has been, I think, part of the of of the players that have uh, created that space for niche beauty brands. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that I found quite interesting about their entry strategy is they worked with Super Ordinary, which is a brand incubator that has um, that has uh, operations in the U.S. and in China, and they have a very agile model. Uh, where they really they don't make the distinction between sales and marketing this is one thing for them and they their mission is to put the product into as many hands as possible meaning uh, uh meaning making it accessible and attractive and so i think that you know since that moment in time they've been quite active um on doing a number of initiatives around uh, collaborating with celebrities around doing brand crossovers uh with chinese brands around uh launching new products with you know China at the core of the launch and and all of those initiatives that are you know building the visibility for 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 Chinese consumers and making it a really attractive brand for Chinese consumers today so yeah I think pharmacy is one of the ones that I that we watch out and that I personally quite uh, enjoy uh, looking at their Chinification and their yeah, no, they, I think you're right. Like they have, they they got in early and they have done well off the back of off the back of the strategy um, implemented in terms of live streaming and influencers and really really rode that wave. Um, and I'm sure it had a big impact into why PNG decided to acquire them. Um, China market's so important. 
Um, and yes, yeah, so, so I, I agree. I think um, pharmacies are, pharmacies are a good example. And the, the importance of putting China at the heart of some of your launches and things like that, I think that's often difficult and brands yeah. wait, want to wait until China's really big to warrant doing that. But actually it's what's gonna make China really big. So sometimes brands need to take that um, advice in terms of you've got to put effort in before it feels like it's going to pay off. Um, mm. And whether that's a, a new launch or more assets or a local um, collaboration, I think the, the co-op uh, with local brands is something that a lot of international brands are quite scared of, but it definitely we've seen that that works really well um, in the China market. And it's, you know, it's, it's just done more often than, than in the West, right? And it, it works mm. very, very well for international brands to sort of put a stake in the ground um, and get some visibility. Yeah. So last question, Chinification, is it here to stay? Do you <laughs> see that smaller brands, do you see that, that smaller brands are managing to do this? Um, you know, we, we touched mm. on this, but, but how, do, how do you see smaller brands being able to do a, more Chinification? Yeah, um, I, is it here to stay? I think so. Uh, I think the, the, the China pride has revealed uh, something that is very deep and important Chinese consumers, which is exactly as you mentioned, uh, we're not, uh, you know, we're not a market where you can dump your unsold products and your expired products. <laughs> we are, you know, one fifth of the world population and we deserve, you know, respect and attention. I think this is here to stay, really, really here to mm, stay. Um, and therefore, um, a certain level of Chinification will be critical, I think, for any brand that has global ambitions. Um, and the market, as we were saying, is now big enough to justify that even on a, on a strategic and financial perspective. I would say that it would be more detrimental not to do it and not to consider China. It would be very, actually, more difficult stand to hold for many brands in front of their, you know, if they're in front of their executive committee and their, and their strategic committees. Um, um, and we talked a bit about the diaspora because I think, you know, in the US, in France, in the UK, in Australia, we have certain cities where the, the Chinese population is as much as 20% and they are influencing and being influenced with what's mm -hmm. happening in their own market. They are using uh, the China uh, social media platforms and they are sending products and they're, you know, also seeing how brands interact with this, uh, with their home market. So for brands, the key question is how to do it when you're a small brand and, and China is not your key market. I would say you know, lean on, on partners because it's true that going there by yourself is the big investment, big risk. Uh, so having a good distributor and for most brands, that mean distribution online first uh, instead of how it was a couple of years back where you would first look for an offline distributor i would suggest you know look for an online distributor that that's good and use offline as a you know, key activations in certain seas uh, uh, once you have sales and you've really seen uh, that appetite starting to grow um, you can also uh, have options with brand incubators uh, which are which are you know going to take part of your products and just uh, just um, very agile to uh, develop the presence and you know what we've seen it's a little bit more uncommon uh, but what we've seen is some brands being 
collaborative and kind of smart in their interactions with DAGOs and be able to actually expand and access mm. uh, areas in the Chinese market that they would never have been able to access with other channels or big, uh, big campaigns. So I think this is also something that is something that you can look at at least uh, and try to understand that space, uh, even if it's a bit more a clear space, but at least to, to recognize the, the value that Daigos can have for market entry, <laughs> because Absolutely. actually, most likely, even if you don't know it or you don't see it, your product is most probably already in China. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I think that's something that I often have written about and talked about is the importance of resellers. And so many brands are absolutely petrified of resellers. But mm. actually, I think that if you are a small to medium sized niche beauty brand coming into the China market without resellers, you have to spend just so much money. Yeah, yeah. And even even yeah. the money is not doesn't have the the value that someone who who wants to sell your product has right so um, <laughs> i think there's a real big there's, there's a really big yeah there. you know i think sometimes when i speak with my clients i i or we, we brainstorm and i tell them maybe you should consider them as kols that can yeah. sell Maybe this is the better way for you to frame your mindset when you're interacting with them, because this is really what they are. They Absolutely. do influence and, and, they, and they make your products accessible. So maybe that's easier for brands to imagine collaboration in that frame. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The way to frame it. Fantastic, Rachel. Thank you so much. I think there's loads of information in there. Thank you, Ali. I will put the link to the report where people can download it and read it and um, reach out to you if they've got questions uh, below. Sure, below. pleasure. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode of Clean Beauty Asia, the podcast with me, Ali Rook. I hope you found the content useful with tips and tricks and takeaways that can really help you move your China journey forward. I always like to hear from my listeners, so please join me on LinkedIn, Ali Rook, or Instagram, Clean Beauty Asia, and I'll be very happy to talk to you more. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.